1: Welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. I have the distinct pleasure of speaking today with Dr. Adish uh, Sate. He's uh, Associate Professor of Sanskrit Literature and South Asian Folklore at the University of British Columbia, Vancouver. Hello, Adish, and welcome to the program.
0: Uh, thanks so much, Raj, for having me on. It's a, I'm a big fan of the podcast, so it's, a, it's kind of an, an honor to be on it myself.
1: Well, before diving into this fascinating book, which you probably have all seen by the, by, by the icon crossing the lines of caste Vishvamitra and the construction of Brahman power in Hindu mythology. Before we dive into the timeless tale of Vishvamitra, tell us about um, your podcasting experiences, adventures. Uh, you probably have been doing um, somewhat more of it in, in the age of COVID-19, I imagine.
0: Well, yeah, no, I mean, we've <laughs> we've all had to become, you know, podcasters or YouTubers uh, due to the current crisis. But I guess I anticipated it for some strange reason. Uh, and since 2016, I've been doing video lectures for my courses. Uh, so kind of creating YouTube videos that that's try to succinctly boil down, you know, centuries of mythology and cultural history for, for undergraduates.
1: That's really cool. That's really cool. Um we'll be sure to link uh, uh link uh your videos to this podcast so folks can check those out as well. And uh the same year in 2016, I started doing online teaching and um really I was sort of uh lost in the wilderness a bit. I had really no real context for what was happening until now, but it seems coincidentally I had been preparing for for what's happening <laughs> currently. <laughs> in terms of engaging learners through distance learning and, and and being a little bit ahead of the curve with podcasts. But it's really great. I think, um, I think the students really appreciate it. Um, and it sort of, it um, it bespeaks the transformation afoot on our globe, across our globe, that that even uh, folks who are at the Academy, um, not just, you know, um, you know, younger, more agile scholars, but yourself, but really across the globe folks are really embracing distance learning and podcasts. Um just by chance, I asked uh New Books Network for numbers for this podcast. It's quadrupled to quintupled in the last three months listenership. Incredible. Incredible. Folks are folks want something to do. So I I, I half joked uh, on my lo- last podcast uh that this was my um <laughs> this was my contribution to the war effort. <laughs> Picking up podcast speed. <laughs> um but um so enough about you and your, you know, your interesting curve uh, embracing distance learning and podcasting. Well, I just uh, want to, I, I just
0: want to say one thing on that is that this is sure. really uh, the not only just the future based on the crisis, the current crisis that we're in, but our students and the next generation are fundamentally. You know, uh, they they have a virtual identity alongside a <laughs> tangible, physical one. So it's really important, I think, for to embrace that side of the learning process, uh, the online dimension of of learning.
1: Uh, yeah, I really respect that. I'll I'll say uh, um, I'll be very forthcoming that I had the very good fortune of having um, direct teaching both at the academy and also in oral lineage and parampara and in a variety of spaces, workshops and all kinds of training. And I was actually really prejudicial towards um, uh, thinking that online learning couldn't be impactful. I was uh, proven wrong actually mm-hmm. uh, to the point that even uh, one-on-one consulting and coaching I do online now, and it's equally impactful. And not to say that, um, that there's any replacement for certain avenues um, of in-person embodied experience, mm-hmm. but nevertheless, I Surprise myself at how much one could accomplish and 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 how how much one can impact uh, the life of learners through the mm-hmm. online medium uh, I imagine it's been similar in your journey as well mm, no
0: absolutely and it's a learning it's a learning process on how to to integrate virtual uh virtual media as well as in class and in person embodied learning as you're saying absolutely
1: sure now you've written this fascinating book I mean. Of course, I'd probably use the word fascinating for every book I interview, uh, because in, in my view, they are. Uh, but if you're anything like me, and that's probably why you're listening to this podcast, uh, you're a Hindu studies nerd or a South Asian religion aficionado of sorts. And so you would find this fascinating. Um, as you know, I have a variety of guests ethnography, modern, pre modern, ancient Indian. But um, uh, today we get to talk about the wonderful world of ancient Indian myth. Um, Alisha's written a fascinating study. Uh, of this character Vishwa Mitra. Uh, although it's been published in 2015, um, really in the course of three millennia of religious history, it's a new book <laughs> um, for sure. Uh, and and we, um, it was actually this book in part that got me thinking that one day I wanted to do a quote unquote mapping Markandeya project. Mm. Um, and then I got to speak with Brian Collins the other day about his. Book on the mythology of Parashurama, where we mentioned Nadesha's work. Um, and I, I mentioned then that I, I think I'm satisfied with my market, mapping Markandeya chapter. <laughs> Maybe it's too onerous to try and map uh, the life of a character like Vishamitra, but luckily someone else has done it. And hmm. so, why don't you tell us a little bit about, um, why don't you tell us about, you know, how this, this sort of the genesis of the project before we dive into what the book's actually about? Hmm.
0: Well, I could uh, do you want the long story or the short story of <laughs> the genesis of the prime? I've
1: got time, you've got time, I've got <laughs> not- I've got an hour and forty five minutes. You can start with creation if you wish. You can start That's with great. your dissertation, you can so start with, it, what Why don't
0: I start at the beginning then and give you a you know give you a big a map I'll map the, the I'll be mapping the Vishwamitra in this sense. So it started in an odd way in nineteen ninety-eight, uh, when I was a master's student and I spent some time in Pune. Uh, and uh my mom who is still alive at the time uh she sent me she said go to my best friend saroja and she'll help you learn sanskrit so i spent so I, so showed up at saroja bhate's office she's a she's she at that time she was the professor uh, department head at pune university of the sanskrit department and i said you know here i am the son of your best friend ready to learn uh, and I was interested in Ramayana at the time, and epics in general, Mahabharata, Ramayana, and stories uh, more broadly speaking in how stories have constructed our understanding of s- social power, society, history, and so on and she said let 's why don't you just read the balakanda and she just gave me the <laughs> a copy of the balakanda said, "Why don 't you read it and and Let's talk about it. And as I was reading the Balakanda of the Ramayana, uh, you know, here I was reading. A, I tried to read a, 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 you know, a chapter a day, sometimes a few days. And you know, if you've ever read the Balakanda of the Ramayana, this is the opening book of the Ramayana. Um, it's suddenly it. There's an interjection of story after story of this Rishi, this sage. Vishwamitra, who who is the the one of the gurus of Rama and Lakshmana, and you know I, I just became obsessed and fascinated with um, the stories of this sage, and the stories are really a journey, his own journey of starting off as a kshatriya, a king, uh, and through his own power of will and and resolve, transforming himself into a brahmin because he. He has in his head that that's a, a higher power somehow. Uh, so, to, in my mind, not only did it touch upon issues that I grew up trying to understand, which is what is this power of Brahman identity and, and social status and hierarchy, uh, but also how, how do these stories kind of uh, in, interject themselves into discussions, discourses about social identity? Uh, in a way that I was not expecting <laughs> at the time. Uh, so then, I mean, the story is only half told. I, I I would also so I would read during the day Sanskrit literature, the, the Ramayana, and in the afternoons I would go to my father's best friend. So this is <laughs> I was reading with my mother's best friend, the Ramayana, and I would go and uh, sit with my father's best friend, a fellow named Waman uh who has a you know, he plays a prominent role in, my, in this book, uh, but he himself is a kirtankar. He's a son of a kirtankar, in fact, and it's keeping a tradition alive of uh, Puranic narrative performance uh, within uh, the kind of Maharashtrian bhakti world. Uh, and he would tell me the same stories of Vishwamitra, but in an oral performative style Sitting in his veranda, you know, in the evening while I was madly scratching at mosquito bites that were (laughs) that were that were you know attacking my body while desperately trying to keep my concentration at his just beautiful mode of storytelling that he was doing. So that's that was the birth of the book, the realization that the same stories, the same issues, the same kind of crises of identity not only have existed in the textual traditions that we look at as Indologists, Sanskritists, however you want to term it, but also that they occupy a certain space within oral performative traditions today right? or in in the year 2000, as it were.
1: Well, one of the interesting, um, uh, the topic of your book is absolutely Mm -hmm. fascinating, but also the methodology. Um, I currently have the good fortune of co-authoring a paper where we're actually going to try and look at some lived um, religious performative traditions in tandem with uh, Sanskritic goddess narratives. Mm-hmm. Not always done. Uh, uh, there's not always the opportunity to. If there is the opportunity, not all scholars have the, the predilection or training or inclination to, to, to to, to, to tackle that scope. And so one of the things we should say about your book, maybe uh, right off the top, uh, mm-hmm. is about the kind of data you use and the, the range mm-hmm. of motion. Want to say a bit about that?
0: Absolutely. So the, um, the, we can continue the story where I left off in some ways, which is that at that moment, I was being trained in two different disciplines in Berkeley. Uh, one was with Robert Goldman, uh, who who was teaching me really how to read Sanskrit texts, uh, with a careful attention to, uh, particularly to commentary, but also to framing devices and um, uh, ways in which you can historicize texts beyond uh, just uh, treating them as as, uh, inert reflections of a timeless history. Uh, So that was one side of my training. The other side of my training was working with Alan Dundas. Uh, who has uh, passed away uh, since that time, uh, but who really was is one of the kind of modern fathers of uh, American or North American folklore studies, um, and you know, really, <laughs> the kind of uh, the greatest sort of uh, uh, advocate for understanding what he called oral literary criticism, right? The the way in which stories are performed uh, impacts. The way in which the meaning of the story is brought to life, um, so those were those kind of informed my initial data sets, which was so my initial doctoral work, which this book is an ultimate kind of regrowth out of. Uh, the initial doctoral work was kind of a almost. Uh, a split a split personality work, where half of it half of each chapter was a study of texts, the other half was a study of oral performance uh, in Marathi in these uh, marathi kirtan traditions. Um, that then uh, that was my initial data set right which which was Sanskrit texts, mostly epic uh, epic texts and Puranic texts uh, and, and then looking at. Uh, oral narrative performance, what I realized uh, um, after finishing the dissertation and then rethinking how this is going to turn into a book is that these are really just two data points in a much more diverse and vast and, um, you know, uh, uh, in some ways almost impossible to, to Describe a, a kind of sea of, of data points that's almost impossible to describe. And like you were saying, it's it's really hard to, to gain <laughs> sufficient training in all of those. Um, uh, but I, I realized in some ways that if I were to tell an, an adequate kind of long-dure narrative of the Vishwamitra narratives of, of why these stories were so important, even you know, in the epic Ramayana itself and in the year 2000, one needed to to do a survey like that. So uh, for the book, my data point, my data kind of um, uh, my field of data uh, expanded rapidly. So <laughs> so uh, the first chapter, if we want to get into the chapters, I can kind of outline it for you. the The first chapter really focuses on the early Vedic and other uh, late Vedic sources for Vishwamitra. So I had to kind of become a. Uh, you know, an amateur Vedicist for that chapter really to, to try to understand uh, uh, how how Vishwamitra worked in the the Vaidika, uh, the tradition of mantras and and uh, their exegesis within the Brahmanas. Uh, the uh, the epics form the second chapter of the book in which I kind of examine how then Vishwamitra is. Uh, is understood within the Ramayana and Mahabharata and key kind of points of debate between those two epics. The third chapter uh, focuses on the early Puranic tradition. The fourth chapter goes into regional Puranic traditions, right? How in various regions, particularly in Gujarat, uh, uh, that Vishwamitra gets localized, put into a certain kind of place uh, within, the, within the tradition. I switch also then in in the fifth chapter to looking at early Marathi narratives uh, that are coming from non-Brahman sources on Vishwamitra and telling in some ways a different story, a story of Vishwamitra as a villain, not as a guy who willfully changed his his varna his caste. Um, and then in the last chapter, I I bring back our our. Uh, family friend of Vaman Golatkar and look at how uh, performed, oral performed narratives, visual narratives on, in film and on TV, uh, these are, are depic- have started depicting Vishwamitra in a in a different modern sense in the 20th century.
1: So in looking at this wide array of, <laughs> of, of data points mm. on what we may call say uh, the cultural continuum uh, as pertains to Indian narrative, Indian myth, um, Indian storytelling. What are you advancing as your your sort of central takeaway position argument? What do you? What does the book show with all of this uh, data?
0: Mm-hmm. No, it's, a, it's an excellent question. Uh, the I mean, of course, the larger the the I, I guess the the larger issues that I was interested in, uh, in some ways, is a conversation with this this approach that Sheldon Pollock has has really been the kind of at the center of which is trying to understand what literary culture has done uh, for for uh, readerships of Sanskrit texts right in the in the, in the pre-modern world um, what I was interested in is if we can think of other types of cultures besides just the literary besides just the uh, certain kind of you know, elite, poetic, uh, refined, courtly tradition that that uh, Pollock and others talk about. Uh, instead of, if we can think of what what I call a public mythological culture, what does that? What did that do? And how did it work? Did it have the same rules as, a, let's say, a Mahakavya in a you know in the Gupta court? Does it operate with the same kind of rules, or does it have a different set of interests and? Uh, modes of of inflection, and that's what I think the the book, if it if it outlines anything, it it shows it it shows how this mythological culture works, um, uh, how it what i what I tried to argue in the book is that it it brings into being a certain story world that it attaches to the
1: real world uh, of of its audiences, uh, of its public, and is that story world. Just For the sake of teasing out some of the insights, is would you say that story world uh, is evidenced in the Sanskrit narratives primarily, in the more modern performances mm-hmm. uh, primarily, or or you know, indeed, how do these very different milieu relate to the story world?
0: Well, it's a, this good question <laughs> uh, the story world is brought into being through the, the the narratives themselves, right so the 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 media of the of the bringing into being in some ways is uh, is not as relevant. so they're all bringing into being story worlds, uh, contemporary oral performances, uh, ancient Sanskrit written texts, uh, inscriptions on stone. Images, iconography—all of these are somehow conjuring up uh, story worlds. Um, this is incidentally a, a narratological uh, uh, concept. David Herman is the, is the, um, the is who I'm bringing this from—the sto- idea of story worlds. the The key, though, is that to me is that different types of performances, whether they're in texts or whether they're live, uh, oral. Uh, Uh, Performances; their objective is what I call sort of trying to fix (laughs) the narrative, right? With all of the various implications of that word of fixing, right? Not only crystallizing, solidifying, putting into place a particular narrative in a in a situation uh, or in a setting, but also to correct it in some way, right? To offer the true story, the 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 most valid or the most effective way of understanding, in my case, how Vishwamitra was able to become a Brahmin and gain this social power that is crucially at stake in the story. But in all stories, I would say one can analyze it that way, which is how does a particular performer, whether it's an author, a written, uh, you know, a writer, or whether it's an oral performer, whether it's uh, someone who's drawing an image right how do they fix a, a story within a larger fluid tradition of that
1: of that particular narrative okay. so if we take for example mm-hmm. if we limit our scope to the early uh chapters of your book and we're looking for say at uh quote unquote the Vishwamitra story in mm-hmm. uh in vedic and, and epic sources mm-hmm. um tell us a bit about the texture because uh mm surely there are variants. And you'll, you'll I mean, one can think mm-hmm. that each text will offer peephole into some Vishwamitra or that each text itself is sort of a, a, a part of a patchwork quilt. Or, you know, tell us about the process of how you regard the, the variations across text.
0: Well, yeah, um, what I tried to do, I mean, different in different Context. I, I tried to do. I try to follow the data in some ways, uh, but maybe the maybe the most important moment that we can focus on in, in terms of in terms of thinking of variation, uh, and maybe the one that I spent the most time thinking about was the variation between the two epics, right, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, in handling this case of an unusual Brahmin so and maybe maybe just step back one step further the reason why it's unusual is itself something worth thinking about because what i found my at least based on the data i looked at in the in the vedas is that maybe it wasn't so unusual for vishwamitra to have been a kshatriya right uh, uh, someone belonging to this uh, w- this type of human that was uh, Rajanya in particular is how he's referred to um, who is somehow a, a prince a, a king uh, and also a Brahman so in the in the kind of texts that describe Vishwamitra's social standing he's described as being both and it doesn't seem to be a, such a big deal <laughs> at least in these texts that he can be both and this is this is one of the things that I saw is is historically, Coming into place in the epic tradition, this uh, impossibility of someone having two varna statuses at the same time. So, if Vishwamitra is described both as Rajanya, as a as a king uh, or as a royal uh, status, and as a Brahmana, the epics had to find a narrative that could sufficiently explain how how he's referred to as both. And they and the epics come up with a narrative of change, right? So he starts as a kshatriya and becomes a Brahman. Now the Ramayana, at least in my argument, uh, in in the, in the book, the Ramayana tells this as a story of willful triumph, right? As a as a self um, um, uh, <clears throat> as a as a self transformation, in which he sheds all of his kshatriya qualities one by one and acquires Brahminical qualities, thereby, again, reinforcing uh, socially the, the kind of ideology of why Brahmins should be respected more than others. Uh, the Mahabharata, on the other hand, seems to be a lot more uncomfortable with his uh, blend of Kshatriya and Brahmin qualities. To them, it's he still has a certain irascibility and fiery energy that other uh, characters such as Parshurama, who you talked about in the previous podcast, and Drona in particular uh, embody some of these problematic blends of kshatriya qualities, of, of royal qualities, as well as brahminical qualities. And for the Mahabharata, it seemed to be a, a certain problematic figure uh, so his slot in the in their mythological kind of worldview I, I found to be variant than the Ramayana
1: let's um just a random comment it's interesting mm-hmm. that the Mahabharata in general seems to uh, always present um uh, the 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 pitfalls for brahmins of behaving like Kshatriyas mm-hmm. or or of having this fiery temperament always something to be. Uh, subdued, controlled, sublimated uh, domesticated in some way Uh, Mm -hmm. a number of them come to mind but I just recently spent a bunch of time thinking about Shringin Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Purikshit put the snake over his um, uh, Shamika's neck and then he ends up cursing Purikshit to die And this is somehow uh, this this Vishwamitra like nature is problematic even in the Brahmanas uh, Mm -hmm. of Mahabharata much less this this um, this um hybrid or even pretender sort of figure um but but more more towards your your work i'd like to point out that there is a very useful um um url a website that for folks like me is just a treasure trove right? Right. tell us about the companion site and what you've done with the, with the quote-unquote variants of this text
0: Ah okay. <laughs> I almost forgot about the companion sign. it's been so long. That's yes. my job. <laughs> <laughs> no, so there is a question. I mean, all of my all of my the the research comes from also my own translations of of the various versions of these uh of these narratives of Vishwamitra. So there's a question about what what do what does one do with these uh you know Oxford, uh, OUP, for you know, all of their generous support, they were a bit hesitant to add another 100 pages of, of translations. Um, so, the, the kind of forward thinking at the time uh, was to develop a companion website uh, in which the translations of my, my translations of these epic and Puranic texts are freely available for download. Uh, so, yeah, so it has all of the Vishwamitra. Uh, narratives nicely organized. uh.
1: So we'll definitely link um, the URL for that site to this podcast as well. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a topic that we we touched on a fair bit in our interview about Parashurama. Uh, Would you say that there are key features that are essential for the Vishamitra story? Would you say that some of the variations, I mean, I'm speaking to sort of... uh, to uh, an audience who may not have looked at the stories individually. Would you say, you know, to what extent is there a Vishwamitra story with variants? Or to what extent is it a composite that you're creating? Or to what extent are you looking at a particular iteration in the Puranas, for example? Could you say a bit about that? Um,
0: I guess I, in some ways, there's it's like all story cycles in some ways, that uh, it kind of depends on the storyteller, which which narrative takes prominence, uh, for them when they think of the particular name of the character, right? So um, and go back to my initial uh, moments of research. So while my, our family friend, Waman uh, Kolhatkar, uh, the Kirtan singer, he was able to tell me every single narrative that he knew about Vishwamitra, for most other contemporary uh, consultants that I had, right, my, our family or, or even shopkeepers who I would ask them, hey, do you know Vishwamitra and what do you, what do you know about him? For most contemporary folks, I would say, the, there are two things that stand out about Vishwamitra in India. One is his irascibility and his anger uh, and his, you know, his, his, his readiness to curse lifting his arm up and, and delivering a curse at the moment's insult. Right? That characteristic is just embedded within the modern understanding, contemporary understanding of Vishwamitra. And the other contemporary you know, uh, uh, immediate uh, uh, association with, with Vishwamitra is the fact that he was seduced by the apsara, the nymph, uh, menaka, right these are the two story or the two motifs that are deeply deeply associated with with Vishwamitra in the modern period and if i had my dreathers right if i were to re- redo this book i might consider a, a reverse history of Vishwamitra where i start with these two uh these two key features that we all know and and do a deep dive right where do these come from because in fact if you go uh, all the way back to the Vedic tradition, that irascibility is there. Right? The, the From the very first story of Shunashepa that we find in which Vishwamitra curses his own sons uh, to become outcasts. Uh, uh, dog cookers, as the as the kind of slur that's used to describe them, right? Uh, Shwapakas, shwapaches. So from that very first kind of narrative of Vishwamitra, that irascibility is there, but in each uh, in each historical moment, in some ways, it gains a different inflection and a different uh, coming to terms with with uh, its genealogy, really. Another way, it, it's so it's social genealogy. I would
1: say, I think that's one of the most fascinating features I find about mm-hmm. about a myth, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, like all story, this, the, there's this multivalence, but there's this extreme um, breadth of, you know, speaking to something in the moment in sort of the generation or the, the epoch of of of. of, of um, composition, but also speaking to something much broader, um, mm-hmm. uh, close to timeless, if timelessness even exists. But you know this idea that you know, he's archetypal fire, right? There's lust, mm-hmm. there's anger, there's the Kshatriya nature. This is so part of his MO that you can't quite whittle that part away, no matter how you wish to reframe him.
0: Well, right? what's interesting to me is that we can now maybe art- assert that it's a part of his Kshatriya identity, right? But that itself is an ideological spin in some ways on a on a much deeper inner anxiety perhaps of Brahminhood, which is that the you know if you go all the way back to the first uh, iterations of Vishwamitra when it was when he was still part of very much part of a vedic tradition there was a deep concern within there is a de- deep concern even today within vedic or Vaidikas of being able to control one's speech so the the Deep anxieties there are being in some ways mapped onto a different varna, right? A different caste uh, within within the narrative tradition. So I, I wouldn't want to, I would, I would hesitate to just automatically assume that these are kshatriya uh, behavioral characteristics, but rather it's a Brahmin mapping of human characteristics, I would say, <laughs> onto the other, right? Onto a certain... Uh, uh, a certain non-Brahman trait, and Vishwamitra comes to embody that Brahman. Others, this is one of the arguments of the book, uh, is that he represents within at the very edge of Brahmanhood. You could say those features that you shouldn't have as a as a good Brahman, as a quote unquote
1: good Brahman. In, indeed, he's mm. sort of um, his his fiery temperament is um, ascribed. Uh, as the domain of Kshatriyas through the lens of this, you know, we're looking, uh, Brahmanic ideology is, is the lens of these texts. So um, you touch on and, and speak to um, really what you say in your subtitle, right? Um, the construction mm-hmm. of, of Brahman power mm-hmm. in Hindu mythology. So say more about that. Say what you've what you what learned uh, about the construction of Brahman power, the ways in which this character uh, speaks the construction yeah. of Brahman power. That's so much at the heart yeah. of your book, I think
0: yeah no i mean that's the it's hard to hard to speak about it uh especially in times in which we're learning about you know uh in some ways very brutal forms of social power that are going on in the world around us uh it's difficult to speak of, of power uh but the in the in the mythological tradition you know power is a is a it's a it's a nefarious and insidious thing. right It's a, it's a, it's a way to, uh, it, it's a way to define boundaries but also exclude people from being inside of the boundary. Uh, and myth- the, the narratives of Vishwamitra in some ways are about entering into Brahminhood, right. How can one become a Brahman? Uh, but the way in which they're told often, not always but at least in the in within the the epics certainly and uh, in most puranas the, the the door is in some ways closed to ordinary people right it's it's not possible for ordinary uh, non brahmins to ever imagine themselves doing the kinds of ascetic practice that vishwamitra had to do to become this high status uh, uh, Brahman sage. He had to do ascetic practice for 14,000 years, some extra- extraordinary number of years. Um, the, or he had to have divine intervention in the Puranas. In the Puranas, he, he has to find a sacred, um, a sacred tirtha in which he was able to transform his physical body and so on. But for uh, it becomes a kind of um, a story of an impossible transformation for for ordinary people, um, but interestingly, there's a there's a narrative of Vishwamitra in which he's very much portrayed as a villain, which did find I would say a wider uh, audience, and it's, uh, it's one of the more sort of more powerful narratives of abjection and suffering ever told, which is the story of Harishchandra. Uh, and I deal with that story mostly in, in chapters five and six of the book, in the last section of the book, um, uh, in which his status as being at the margins of Brahminhood and a symbol of, uh, of the extreme irascibility and, and power of Brahmins within, a social, uh, within the social wo- Hindu social world is seen as a threat. Right, it's seen as a as a site of potential villainy, uh, in in especially for this king, good king Harishchandra, who's uh, who he and his wife and his son are tormented mercilessly, really by by Vishvamitra, who takes advantage of every privilege he has as a Brahmin. Uh, and in the end, I think anyone can see, whether Brahmin or non-Brahmin, the potential for abuse of this social status that, uh, that comes with Brahminhood in
1: traditional South Asian society. (laughs) Yeah. So what do you see? um, There's so much, so much there so much. It's such an interesting topic, uh, uh, timely even timeless and timely. Uh, But what do you see in terms of, let's just focus a little bit on the, uh, I want to ask a little bit more about the performances towards the end Mm -hmm. of this podcast, but let's, let's, focus, for example, on the Harish Chandra story. So we're looking specifically at Vishamitra within the confines of the Markandeya Purana. What would you mm-hmm. say is the primary function, theme, moral motif? How do you think that narrative is functioning in its Markhandi Purana iteration?
0: Well, with the markandeya I should ask you. Actually, you're the,
1: you're the expert on the Mark <laughs> I am uh, here. I, am, I, I I just I just play dumb on this podcast. <laughs> well. <laughs> well, sometimes I'm not playing, but anyhow, and I'm just curious. <laughs> the uh,
0: well, I was curious too, actually. In fact, uh, we can talk about that. The the so the harishchandra narrative uh, has also a wide range of variation, uh, and it's it it has. Uh, uh, you know, uh, it's, it has a rich and robust set of regional traditions in in medieval and contemporary South Asia, uh, so that it's told differently in Maharashtra, it's told differently in the south, in Bengal, in Gujarat, and in the Hindi speaking areas. So, so it, in some ways, you could do a many Harishchandra's book, <laughs> just like the the famous many Ramayanas uh, books, and there is a there is this. Maybe it, that's on the back burner at some point in the future. Uh, there will be people listening to this podcast who are who, who are invited long ago to be part of this, but uh, but so you the, it's it's impossible to speak of a single Harishchandra narrative in that way. Um, there are many Harishchandras. Interestingly, he's hard to find, relatively speaking. This story is hard to find in the Sanskrit uh, classical tradition. Uh, and in fact, the the first time it's told uh, historically in any great length is in the Markandeya Purana that you referenced to. Uh, and then after that, the only really other major uh, Puranic version is in this other medieval Purana called the Devi Bhagavata, which, is, which knows the Markandeya quite well and is in fact uh, having a conversation with the Markandeya version. But the Markandeya version comes kind of, interjected in some ways right it's sort of stuck in into this uh series of four questions that birds are uh are being asked right uh, the, the the speakers are birds if i remember correctly They're yeah asked the asked four these birds yeah. yeah four birds do proxy for mark and these- That's right, these birds who happen to have been on the Mahabharata battlefield and are better sources for answering these questions about the Mahabharata. Um, But the story is told, if I remember correctly, to answer kind of a stupid trivia question in some ways about the Mahabharata, which is why uh, why did the sons of the Pandavas die so young? <laughs> and instead, and to give the answer, th- this long and complex story of you know abuse of Brahmin social power and privilege is told, is along with like complete abjection of of the Kshatriya of the king, right, the noble king Harishchandra. Um, so it's a it's a puzzling story in the in the Markandeya. It, uh, it doesn't really go along very well with the other other. Aspects of it, I tried to make sense of it in some ways by thinking about narrative context. Right, so after the after the story of uh, Harishchandra, there's a long discussion of um, dualistic Vedanta, if I remember correctly. Uh, between uh, um, uh, I'm forgetting the, the characters now. Who Jada and Sumati, I think. Right. Uh,
1: um, I think this is that might be the portion where they talk about Pravati dharma's. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe. Yeah, and,
0: and,
1: and it's,
0: it's sort of a, attributed to a dattatreya tradition. I think uh, at the that that's coming out of that region. So in some ways, to me, I felt like that was a an answer that was being offered. Right, the markandeya was in some ways offering the answer of non dual. Sorry, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, Sorry, a non-dual yoga tradition is what it is. I'm forgetting what what this context is now. Uh, but a non-dual yoga tradition is being offered as a as a solution in some ways to the question of suffering, or the universal question of what do we what what why do bad things happen to good people and what should we what should good people do about it? The answer that's being offered by the Markandeya Purana by juxtaposing this story with a long discussion, a philosophical discussion is of how to achieve liberation while uh, still stuck in suffering in some ways
1: mm. indeed now since you've had the luxury of looking at uh, textual traditions mm. um, more recent or even modern current performative traditions mm. uh, you have a you have a unique vantage point uh, or at least a uh, Few, few and far between are the scholars who have this vantage point. I'd say, uh, do you see? Do you see a tension between the two? Do you see a need to reconcile the two? Like, how do you? Do you see a tension between what you see in terms of ancient Indian Sanskrit text mm. versus the performance traditions, where, uh, for example, Vishwamitra may be uh, vilified in some way? I mean, do you, like, mm. can you talk about that tension? Well, uh, this <sighs> the tension comes only when we don't know
0: what happened in between right and and (laughs) we we can't really uh there's a discontinuity when when we see discontinuity that's where tension comes from so so of course one thing that we really need more of and which what you know scholars such as yourself and many others are doing more of which is try to fill in the blanks right fill in the early modern what happens to sanskrit culture, mythological culture uh, in the early modern period uh, prior to the onset of colonial, uh, colonial presence in South Asia. The more we understand about that time period, I think the less the, we'll see a, a, a massive disjunction between classical or early texts versus contemporary uh, refractions of those texts.
1: Are you still uh, interested in or studying Vishwamitra?
0: Well, yeah, I mean <laughs> I, I feel I'm always interested in Vishwamitra. I'm not sure what more I can do <laughs> with Vishwamitra. The our our family friend again, uh <laughs> Latkar sort of teased me, you know. So apparently I don't really know much about these things, but apparently I'm my family is of the Vasishta Gotra. And, you know, his his family is of the Vishwamitra Gotra, so he always thought it was amusing that here's a Vasishtha Brahmin studying Vishwamitra Brahmin, you know. So so I'm not sure how how much more a Vasishtha Brahmin can say about Vishwamitra. Um, Yeah, I'm always interested. New things ever appear.
1: What are you currently working on? Hmm. So, so I've switched.
0: In some ways, I've switched gears. So, like like I mentioned before, I have a, kind of a two different hats. One is as a Sanskrit Sanskritist, uh, student of Sanskrit, and the other is as a folklore scholar. Uh, so, what I what I'm hoping to do uh, is to work on, and I have been working on uh, these uh, storytelling collections that started getting popular in the early second millennium, uh, specifically the Vedala bunch of the the twenty five tales of the Vaitala. uh and i've been doing a more of a text centered uh philological or uh maybe new philological analysis and uh which it will there'll be a translation coming out soon uh of the, the these twenty five tales of the Vetala to try to understand how a a new kind of public storytelling uh Culture, manuscript culture, really grew and proliferated in the early second millennium, uh, and particularly, uh, I mean, caste is in some ways still there on the in my in my interests and of social status and social power. For of particular interest to me is how these traditions were able to cross uh both religious boundaries with relative ease so the the jains were interested in these same narrative traditions hindus buddhists uh muslims right uh it was a it was a multi uh multi-religious uh sphere in some ways of of uh narrative culture that that moved across uh, persian and sanskrit and vernacular languages uh, and really became a, what I call a public, uh, a public culture, pre-modern public culture in the second millennium. So that's that's where my interests are currently, is trying to understand popular literary traditions, uh, folk cultures in the early second millennium.
1: So assuming the planet's still here, and uh, <laughs> so is this podcast. Yeah. you're very welcome to come back and talk about subsequent works. Yeah. Um, is there anything else about the book you hope to be touch on today?
0: Well, I hope people, you know, enjoy it. If you haven't seen it, if you, yeah, I think uh, it, the there's a lot in there. <laughs> I suppose maybe, maybe, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm flattered and thrilled to be asked to speak about it.
1: Well, it's a it's a fascinating book uh, on a number of levels not least of which uh, uh, it affords insight into um, Brahmanic power, along with this uh, fascinating figure of ancient India that survived to modern day Vishwamitra. And it really uh, bespeaks the interplay between the vitality of um, lived performances and ancient Indian um, mythological performances in which you find... uh, or bards as part of these ancient narratives, and mm-hmm. so it's really um, uh, we look at texts, and it's it's really hard to understand the very fluid contexts that that that, that empowered and enlivened the text, and mm-hmm. you know it's 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 a, a fine line we tread, mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel, and so there's lots of fascinating data in the book. Um, well once again, we've been speaking about crossing the lines of caste, Vishwamitra and the construction of Brahman power in Hindu mythology. And we've been speaking with uh, by the way, it's OUP 2015. There is a companion site uh, to the book that I will link in this podcast. We have been speaking with the book's author, Dr. Adish Sate of University of British Columbia who is well ahead of the curve of um, (laughs) academics, podcasting and creating educational materials for distance learners. So we will also uh, have some links to his YouTube material. Um, Thank you very much for appearing on the program today.
0: Hey, thanks so much, Raj. It was was a pleasure and an honor to be invited. And yeah, I love the podcast and love what you're doing.
1: (laughs) Thanks very much. Until next time, um, stay safe stay sane um keep reading keep thinking keep listening um and keep contemplating the relationship between performance and written text (laughs) take care